0: Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier.
3: Today we have a return guest on the show, Dr. Mike Schumer the uh, waterfowl ecologist and assistant professor at the State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry. Uh, We're going to ask Mike to give us an update on the whole weather situation and how it relates to waterfowl migration. Uh, Frequent listeners of the show will remember from, I believe they were episodes 24 and 25, we had Mike on to share with us the details of some work that he's done to better understand the climactic and weather factors that influence waterfowl migration in the eastern U.S. That's the extent of of the application of some of his work at this point. And so we're going to revisit some of that very briefly. And so we're recording this on January 9th, and we're going to talk about uh, the last month of the duck season here at the southern end of the the United States. And uh, so with that, Mike, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. Really appreciate it. So, Mikey, yeah, on the previous episodes where we we had you as a guest, uh, you you got into a lot of detail of the weather severity index, what its components are, and and how you and your research partners and colleagues have used that information to give us a better understanding of these weather factors that uh, that are going to be influencing migration. You've actually part of this is you you create, I think, weekly. Projections based on what you're seeing with weather forecast of uh, how ducks should be moving in and in, in and out of uh, certain locations in the eastern U.S. So, uh, I guess at a high level for for folks that didn't or haven't yet listened to those episodes, maybe give us a two minute, uh, three minute sketch of that work and what this weather severity index uh, does and, and how you apply it.
1: Yeah, I can I can do that. No problem. The uh, what we've done is take. Uh, survey data from on the ground from biologists, uh, waterfall survey data, and then pair that up with available uh, temperature and snow data primarily. We did test a bunch of other metrics, but it's really how cold it is and, and how much snow is on the ground and how, how long it's been below freezing and, and how many days in a row there's been measurable snow on the ground. These are the types of things that as, as hunters, we've, we've all talked about affecting duck migration over time. Uh, but we actually quantified that and and put that into a number, where it at some threshold of severity of weather is you know it got so cold for so long and there was so much snow for so many days, um, we get a threshold where we start to get a decreasing number of of ducks at a at a certain location, and this is this is focused specifically on dabbling ducks. Um, we built it originally for mallards, and then we added uh, the other suite of of dabbling ducks in the Mississippi in Atlantic flyways. Um, and so we can pull weather data from the internet for any given location and we can really determine to what extent you should be seeing increasing numbers of ducks. And and the, the big one that we can predict pretty well is, is when your birds, um, start to leave. Of course, it's things other than weather, right? Disturbance also affects, uh, birds locally and as well as sometimes larger scale movements, um, as well as landscape level flooding. Sometimes we get really cold weather, but we have, um, Still have landscape level flooding from rivers and so, so ducks will stick around so it's 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 a large scale at the flyaway scale it's a pretty good measure of uh, the relative uh, location of, of ducks um, at any given time during the during the hunting season from October uh, to the end of January depending upon you know where what latitude um, you're hunting at
3: Mike I want to talk now big picture about what we've seen uh, thus far, uh, this hunting season with respect to waterfowl migration, the timing and intensity of it, and it's in sort of intersection with, with our weather patterns, and I guess I'll just introduce this by saying that most folks in the eastern U.S. will, will certainly be familiar with the strong cold outbreak that we had, I believe it was in early November and how that had some had folks pretty excited. I think it moved some birds out of northern latitudes at a rate faster than what some of the mid-latitude folks would have, would have appreciated. But uh, it created some opportunities at southern latitudes. But, uh, but things have kind of become less exciting since then. We've had some rather stagnant weather patterns. And, and I think what I'll ask you to do right now is just speak about that in general terms. What have we seen? Uh, again, big picture here uh, since that, since that cold outbreak and, and where are we now? And then once we do that, I want to talk about some of the weather patterns or some of the larger atmospheric issues that are controlling that just to give our folks some perspective on, on, uh, how large the system is that's actually controlling what's going on.
1: Certainly. Yeah. You, you hit the nail on the head. Um, we did have some, some really good cold outbreaks early. Um, a lot of our, what I call early migrating dabbling ducks. So that's really your 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 ducks other than uh, mallards and black ducks, right? Those birds, um, those early dabbling ducks on those cold fronts um, moved out in, in pretty good numbers and relatively early. Um, our our hunting here in in uh, the Great Lakes region in a lot of locations kind of came to a, a screeching halt as our as our deer seasons came in um, as we as our marshes iced up. Um, and there was a, it seemed to be a lot of reasonable success for folks um during that that period. Um, some mallards obviously made their way down south, but they're still very very spread out and so if people aren't seeing the numbers of mallards they might expect um it's just because it takes a lot more severe weather to to move them them south um following that cold front, we had some really substantial warming um, that is expected to continue uh, through. Uh, the end of January now, just because of how, and we'll talk about this in a second, um, how the high and, and low pressure systems are set up around the, around the globe. And in this current warming that we have in the east is is probably going to continue, um, you know, right through the end of January, uh, unfortunately. So, you know, once we, once we got ducks to where they're at, and this is probably like two, three weeks ago, I mean, my comment uh, for my long-term forecast for the rest of the season, my late season forecast was that, ducks are probably where they're going to be for the season. So, um, you got to really follow, uh, local movements of birds, um, understand disturbance, food resources. And if there's any rain events, um, that occur and, and, you know, I'd watch river gauges and such because, uh, birds exploit the, the edge of that flood all the time. And so I just say, you know, people that have the capacity to move around really should, should take that to heart and, um, probably take some time to, to try to find birds uh, just going back to the same old same old location uh, without doing your homework is probably going to be a lot less less successful on a year like this where um, birds now have been pressured for months and they've been in the same location um, and they're and they're they're pretty smart <laughs> at
3: this point so it's useful to And and tempting and and natural to want to draw some comparisons to last year with respect to our hunting success and what we've seen with birds because my feeling is that, uh, and my recollection is that kind of what we saw last year, last hunting season, is very similar to what we're seeing this year, at least at these southern latitudes. Had That strong cold outbreak in November and things just got all nasty with respect to uh, or, or unfriendly with respect to the kind of weather systems that we need to move birds around. And the other thing that compounded it last year was, of course, the widespread flooding in the east. And so it's, uh, it's, it's tempting and, and perhaps somewhat instructive to draw some comparisons there. We, we do have some flooding, as you report. report Reports show uh, in the lower end of the uh, of the flyways this year, but uh, I think last year that flooding was much more widespread throughout the the southern portion and mid latitudes of the of the eastern U.S. So can't help but think that that's having an effect as well. My, my sense, Mike, is that from talking to people uh, around you know the, in the southern and mid latitudes of the Mississippi Flyway and you know, even Atlantic Flyway and perhaps Central Flyway a little bit, is that things have have been pretty well hit and miss. There have been opportunities for people to get into birds, um, but it certainly hasn't been long term sustained you know success there there's good days there's certainly really bad days and people are looking for opportunities when there's some wind to help move birds around but overall in this kind of mild pattern that has that has set up it's it seems to be really hit or miss but that's a better alternative than just all miss which is certainly what it seems like we had last year and I do believe there was a pretty strong effect of that widespread landscape flooding uh, you know that's kind of what we suspected was the case last year and initial reports kind of bear that out at least in terms of what we're hearing uh from hunters how how have things shaped up for you and it's what i've described is that generally the way you've uh, heard about it as well
1: well that's exactly what i've what i've heard and you know lots of times we like to go to our own perspective and then and our own experiences and think that that's kind of what's what's going on at the at the landscape scale. So, so I'll pull that one myself here. Um, you know, I, I, I had a phenomenal, uh, waterfall season last year in central New York. We had large scale, uh, river flooding. Um, and it was one of the, one of the, one of the better seasons we've ever had, um, field, you know, flooded fields and, and flooded timber. I mean, folks don't think about, um, central New York as that type of of hunt, but it, it can occur. Um, so I had that this year as well, but but I harvested about half of the number of birds. Our, our season closed on Sunday. Um, and I hunted on, on Friday and Sunday, um, in a, in a grassed up layout boat, um, a setup that's been successful for me in the past. And I actually got two goose eggs. Um, those ducks had, had been there since mid-November. Um, you know, the, 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 the early puddle ducks had moved out and these were mallards and black ducks and, and they had the whole thing figured out, right? Um Friday there was no wind and um they were spinner shy, they were call shy, and the decoys weren't moving enough, right? So it was it's not that there weren't birds in the air, it was just tough. So this is the the hit or miss, right? Um in earlier thaw when the river flooded, uh you know, we, we were getting limits of birds a couple of weeks earlier. So it's there's a lot of on and off. And so, you know, do your homework. I think people do their homework, put their time in. Um in, you know, the, 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 birds are spread out, right. Uh, I've talked with a lot of folks about, you know, that the Great Lakes is this place that could potentially hold a lot of ducks for long periods of time on warm years. And usually about 15% of the surface area of the Great Lakes is covered with ice by this point, And that's most of the shallow marshes and bays that would hold, hold ducks. And right now we're only at, um, about two, two and a half percent ice at best. Um, and we're going to hit 55 degrees and get an inch and a half of rain, um, at least locally here on the weekend. So, um, you know, those are the types of things that, that make, make conditions tough, especially when, um, the birds are really not, um, say halfway down the flyway. They're just really, they're really spread out. So, um, yeah, that's, that, that results in that hit or miss type, uh, uh, experience that, that you're, you're talking about and that I've heard about and experienced personally this year.
3: You've mentioned this a couple of times already, but I want to put a finer point on, on it. So let's look out a couple of weeks, and um, you know, I, I don't think we are very optimistic for any significant cold outbreaks. But uh, is there is there a chance? Are you seeing anything long term? And I, I follow some some weather fo- weather guys on social media, and I see there they all occasionally post a. a Uh, forecast that's two weeks out but then I'll check it the next day and it's a completely different forecast (laughs) in terms of these kind of atmospheric conditions that would set up to um to either be favorable or or unfavorable for some cold outbreaks but are you seeing anything two and three weeks out in any of these forecasts that would give us reason for optimism about some significant cold weather making its way south
1: yeah so the, the seven day forecasts are are really good um, they, you know, the, the predictions and then what you get with a seven day forecast and specifically temperature are pretty close. Uh, the 10 days get a little rusty, you know, the 14, 15, 16 day ones can be, can be pretty tough. Um, but those longer term ones, I mean, if the question is, am I seeing anyone that's saying we're going to get a, a strong polar outbreak? Um, there's, there's not any, um, seasonal term climatologist that's really saying that that's, that's what's going to happen. Um, this has been a tough year to make predictions for a variety of reasons. Um, but unfortunately, the, the you know, the long term is for the, the relatively mild to, to continue. And that, you know, we, we need to ensure that we're talking about the Mississippi and Atlantic Flyway because folks out west have definitely seen really good cold this year and in good movements of birds all the way to the Gulf Coast and Texas and things like that. So uh, that's a whole nother beast over there. And, and they're getting the cold and, and we're getting a really strong um, southern Gulf flow, um, kind of right up the Ohio, you know, Mississippi, Ohio river Valley, and, and up through the North Northeast as well.
3: That's a good point, Mike. And thanks for drawing that, drawing that out. I know early on there was really warm conditions out West folks were struggling, but I, um, but it sounds like things have turned around for them and they're getting some, uh, some fairly cold weather. Is that what I hear you say out West?
1: Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, I mean, cold enough, right. Relative to what, what we have here, what we have here is, it's pretty anomalous um, over the years.
3: Yeah, and if folks are wondering, uh, any of our listeners from out west or even in the central flyway, uh, just want to reiterate from some previous episodes and, and discussions with Mike that uh, you haven't yet uh, assembled the data or done the work to develop uh, weather severity indices and projections of, of migration out in, uh, in those those parts. So thus far just been the, the primarily Mississippi and Atlantic flyway, right?
1: Correct, and you know the other thing that we were really hoping to do in the in the near future is extend it to um, diving ducks, um, and geese, um, swans, maybe even sandhill cranes for those folks that are interested in in sandhill crane migration as well. So um, we've we've done quite a bit of work on this, but there's definitely more um, to get done that's going to be useful for for waterfall hunters and and for conservation planning.
3: Well, I look forward to seeing the uh, the results of that. So uh, we'll stay tuned on that. And I, I want to transition to talk about some kind of big picture climatological patterns. Uh, and I'm, I'm I'm way out of my league here, but I, given, I, I think we have this um, this venue through which we can talk about things. And we mentioned this on a previous episodes. We can talk about things in a bit more detail on a podcast than we can write about it. And so I want to take the liberty of doing that as it relates to. The factors driving these large-scale weather patterns, and why haven't we seen a polar uh, polar vortex disruption or outbreak of, of cold weather since November? So, uh, here, Mike, I'm going to give you an opportunity to share with us some of your meteorological expertise. But, and I guess the way I'll frame this up for you is, is talk big picture about what you look for when you're looking out at these 10, 14-day forecasts that would signal to you, okay. We have a strong. We might have a strong uh, cold outbreak on the horizon. What are you looking for, and how do some of those controlling mechanisms operate?
1: Yeah, and, and you know to be to be honest, I've spent a, a fair amount of time um, with colleagues that are climatologists. Um, we've we've published several papers together and such, um, and they're a, a wealth of knowledge to help move forward uh, what we've done. And I've gleaned a fair amount of of information from them. Um, And so when, you know, when we when we go to look to make longer term predictions on what's going on, I consult them to a large degree. Right. Um, And they have their own Web pages. They're much more, I think, convoluted than than what we produce for waterfall hunters. Um, So we we consult a lot with the with the climatologists um, that we we work with and, and look at the pages they produce. Um, but in simplest terms, it's a lot of what is creating, um, these cold outbreaks is how high pressure and low pressure systems, uh, set up around the globe. And currently, uh, we have, so there's a little bit of a misnomer as far as the polar vortex. And that was the media a few years back when the, when this term polar vortex came out and they said, you know, it's a strong polar vortex, so you're going to have cold. Well, the polar vortex is actually the, 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 the circulation of cold at the poles that stays locked there. So a strong polar vortex is uh, when you don't have a very wavy jet stream. And so all the cold air remains locked at the at the poles. Um, and then when you get a polar vortex disruption, Mike, which is what you just referenced, that's when you get these wobbles in the jet stream and you get cold air that that pours out into the um in into the the mid continent and then into the northeast US and lots of times it comes as a blob that that extends down across the Dakotas and down towards Missouri and Memphis and then and then moves over towards the the northeast and you know along the mid-atlantic coast and over towards Boston and and that has the capacity to bring a lot of snow with it uh, especially in the great lakes region um and the temperatures that would cause uh birds to to move south so lots of times um the the early season um, ice cover in the Arctic and the early season, and when I mean early, I'm talking uh, October period, um, in the early season uh, snow cover in Siberia actually affect um, how those highs and lows will set up for the winter. Um, open sea ice in the Arctic uh, and air that is cold enough will create relatively early snow cover in Siberia which creates a cold high. And the, the location of that high causes a pretty consistent um, disruption in the polar vortex, which leads to cold air pouring into um, the northeast region. Um, the, the other thing that can happen is if that sea ice stays relatively low, with, with we have a very, you know, the Arctic is warming at a phenomenal rate. And so we have these periods when we have sea ice that is uh, non-existent. And so you get these... Um, Kind of relatively warm low pressure systems at the Arctic, and the the cold air can actually split. and so that's a that's a polar vortex split. And then we get circulations of cold air that actually slide down over the North American continent and over um, Russia. And we've seen those at times, and those are long, generally persistent cold periods. So what's happened this year is that there's those those conditions um, generally haven't occurred. Um, there's, a, there's a really strong high that's set up over kind of the Aleutians by Alaska. And so the, the, you know, the jet stream is riding up and over that and then pushing down in the west. And so that creates a, a trough or a, a cold air trough over in the west. And the, uh, the, the equatorial oceans are extremely warm right now. That's, that's just generally an overall warm globe. And so what's happening is that to equilibrate these high and low pressure systems, we have warm air just streaming uh, from the Gulf and as well as from the Pacific um, up through eastern North America, which is creating the system that we we currently have. But the prediction for the rest of January is what's considered a strong polar polar vortex or that that cold air is going to remain at relatively high latitudes in the Arctic and not push down to us.
3: This has been really informative for me because i have several questions come to mind here growing up uh, i never heard about the a polar vortex disruption or or polar vortex or anything, so maybe that 's a relatively new term i don 't know it doesn 't really matter from the context of a conversation here, but that's not the only way that we get cold weather and you 've just referenced that, and so if I understand correctly like when I look at the forecast, there's uh, and look at the temperature gradients across North America right now. There's some really cold weather up in up in Canada, and it even is making its way down into the Central Plain states to some extent. But it it's like it's not because we get these like traditional cold fronts, just the way I and as a layman on the whole weather front think about them. We have these cold fronts that move west to east, prevailing uh, in the uh, in in North America, and and. You know, those aren't necessarily associated with a polar vortex disruption, right? And but it, it seems like what we're getting now is that they will kind of come down south a little ways, but then they won't quite get all the way down here to us. And that's—do I understand this correctly? That's primarily a function of the strength of that jet stream and where it's set up, and some of the, you know, the the strong flow of Gulf moisture that you're talking about that's preventing it from uh, from coming down this far. That's what's happening.
1: Well, so th- this is, that's a very good question. And one of the things I will tell you is that the, the temperature uh, of, of the globe and, and how ocean warming is occurring and how Arctic sea ice is generally decreasing is happening at so fast of a rate that it's unprecedented in anything that climatologists have models for. So if you ask some climatologists, they say that this year was originally set up for there to be these really strong polar vortex disruptions, but that they feel like it's been that that process has been overridden by the fact that the equatorial, you know, the the, the oceans in general towards the equator are so warm that it's that, that it's an overriding factor. And so Right now, those climatologists that say no, our winters are driven by the warmth of the oceans. Their their models, their uh, their equations, their predictions seem to be panning out this year. Where those people that look to the Arctic to determine what our weather is um, are, are not performing that that well this year. So, um, I got. I guess I'm going to dodge that question a little <laughs> bit myself because I'm primarily a waterfall ecologist, okay. <laughs> and that is a difficult question because. Within the, within the fraternity of climatologists, that is an a ongoing um, debate as to what that driver is, and that's kind of what you were getting at. Is it a, is it a, is it a southern phenomenon or is it a northern phenomenon that's really the driver of our, of our winter?
3: Yeah, uh, because if the if this jets, you talked about the trough that has occurred and that's created in the west right now because of the, the I think, you, the high-pressure system over the Aleutians. I believe I remember that correctly. Uh, if that were to shift to the east a little bit, then in theory that trough comes down uh, far, it comes far enough to the east and far enough south that it could bring some of that periodic cold air, not necessarily associated with a polar vortex disruption down to these latitudes. Is that, not talking about the mechanism of how it worked, but is that, is my way of envisioning that, uh, kind of on target?
1: Yeah, yes, it is. I mean, it's not that there, I mean, there is the, the, the relatively quote unquote normal, right. Seasonality that occurs as well. I mean, we're still in, uh, you know, the Northern hemisphere winter, right. So these types of things are, are going to happen, um, as well And that, you know, there's, there's a difference between there's wobbles in the cold air as well. And then there's polar vortex disruptions, which are which are very strong um, outbreaks that occur. I mean, uh, the, the term Alberta clipper. Right. So we call it a bol- polar vortex. Now um, we've we you know, the, the normal wobble of that cold air um, could be considered an Alberta clipper, um, you know, because it's it's a short lived type thing. Right. Um, whereas the the you know a polar vortex disruption tends to be more of a persistent type of a cold system that 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 sets up shop over the the, the Great Lakes in the Northeast yeah. region. Yeah.
3: Well, I tell you what, we'll take either one of those right now. It can be a wobble or it can be a vortex. We'll take <laughs> either one of them. Um You
1: know, as a duck hunter myself, um, and and I think we're as duck hunters, we're genuinely interested in um, you know waterfall migration and such. And I think my one comment to folks, uh, would be to, you know, keep, uh, keep logs of your, of your waterfall hunting. I talk to a lot of hunters, uh, that I hear comments on what, what the hunting was like. And it's, it's maybe one year old information or two year old information. Um, and I find that the folks that keep these long-term logs have a little bit better per- perspective sometimes on, uh, the variability that does come with, with waterfall season and how, you can't just do the same thing as you did last year every single year, that you have to have the capacity to adapt to the, the conditions. There's a reason that waterfowl have been so successful. One of it is that, that we have things like the North American Waterfowl Management Plan and organizations like, like Ducks Unlimited that have put a phenomenal amount of effort into sustaining them. Um, but these are also extremely adaptable animals that that follow the resources. And as a successful hunter, um, keeping track of how of that variation through time in a log, and then and then exploiting it um, would be probably beneficial to a lot of folks to to, to increase um, you know success and seeing more birds and hopefully harvesting more
3: birds. Yeah, that's uh, you've kind of touched on a, one of the things that I wanted to mention. And for sometimes it's it, it's helpful for me, you know, when we as hunters. Insert ourselves into the environment of ducks or geese. You know, we're doing so effectively as predators, uh, and so it's our goal to harvest these birds. But uh, but in effect, that's we're trying to we're trying to kill these birds for our for our use. And so we become the predator, and they are our prey. And so when you think about sort of predator prey relationship out and how one is trying to achieve a certain outcome, and then the, the predator is trying to capture the prey, the prey is trying to avoid being captured. You know, those two things are constantly in competition and so if you as a predator are not adapting to uh, to try to match wits with the way your prey is responding uh, and adapting to that environment as they're sensing it sensing it well then the prey is going to win out more times than not so you're you're speaking your reference to adaptation as hunters being mobile looking for <laughs> newly available habitat changing your tactics changing your setups that all plays into this predator prey dynamic that when we as hunters enter into that habitat into that environment that's effectively effectively from an ecological sense what we're doing and the way that the the birds are perceiving it so sometimes it's fun to think about it from that standpoint, and then there's probably some utility uh, in terms of in- increasing our success rate when we uh, when we do so think about it like that
1: that's that's the stuff that keeps me up at night right there. <laughs>
3: Mike, I thank you again for coming on the show. This has been some great information. It's always fun to to talk with you about these uh, uh, weather issues, waterfowl migration. The more we learn, the more intriguing uh, it is. The more questions we have, we have, and uh, we we certainly don't have all the answers to them yet. But we're we're inching slowly towards a, a better understanding, and and the work that y'all do is an important part of that. And and as I've just described, you know, we can we can ap- apply that to our pursuits of waterfowl uh, in the field. And that's what really makes it it interesting. And we're excited to be able to bring this information to our listeners and excited to have you as part of this, Mike. So thanks so much.
1: Thank you, Mike. Appreciate the opportunity. It's always fun.
3: Special thanks to our guest on today's show, Dr. Mike Schumer, with the State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry. Greatly appreciate his sharing of information with us on weather and migration and all those sorts of fun things as always we thank our producer Clayton Baird our local digital warrior as we've uh, dubbed him and to you our listeners we thank you for sharing your time with us and joining us on this podcast and as always we thank you for your support passion and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation